You're listening to the Charity Champions Podcast. Each year, TFNB Your Bank for Life chooses six nonprofits from around Central Texas to recognize as Charity Champions. Tonight's Charity Champion is... Champions enjoy live on-field presentations at Baylor University home football and basketball games, online broadcast and print marketing exposure, and world-class leadership development through 360 Solutions, all at no cost to the nonprofit. In this podcast, we want to get to know our Charity Champions a little better. We're bringing those who help and those who have been helped into the studio to hear the stories behind the champions. On this episode, Child and Adolescent Mental Health with Claris Center for Families. Division Director Ron Kimball explains how they're filling in the gaps in mental health. When you're looking at social drivers of health, you're looking at housing, food, safety, transportation, and those are the types of gaps that we try to identify. And now, let's get to know our champion. All right, Ron, thanks for joining us today on the Charity Champions Podcast. If we can start, can you just tell us uh, who you are? Sure, and thanks for having me. I'm Ron Kimball. I'm the Division Director for Clara Center for Families. We are the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Division, a part of Texas Region MHMR. So a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> kind of explain to people who don't understand kind of that relationship between you guys and MHMR and how that works. Technically, uh, we are, as I mentioned, the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Division, a part of Texas Region MHMR. There's 39 MHMRs in the state of Texas. If there's 254 counties, every county is falls into one of the service areas or catchment areas of one of those 39. Uh, Heart of Texas covers uh, McLennan, Hill, Bosque, Freestone, Limestone, and Falls. And so within our MHMR, much like all the other 39 other ones across the state, there are tons of programs going on, tons of tons of things happening. Probably the easiest way to conceive of it is that there's four major divisions in pretty much any of those MHMRs, and uh, we're no different. So there's an adult mental health division of Heart of Texas Region MHMR. There is an intellectual and developmental disabilities division, and there's an early childhood intervention division, and that's uh, for children birth through three. And then there's a child and adolescent mental health division. Our Child and Adolescent Mental Health Division has been known for years now due to some funding that we received years ago as Claris Center for Families. can get pretty confusing because the ECI division at Heart of Texas Region MHMR is known as Claris Children's Center uh, because of the funding of the Claris family many years ago. We are one of the four major divisions in MHMR. If you ask most of the families that we serve, most of the children that we serve, they're going to talk about KCF. They're going to talk about Claris Center for Families. We work with, historically, the age range has been three up to the 18th birthday. Over the last three or four years, that has changed somewhat because we've been fortunate enough to get some grants and start some pretty innovative programs that have allowed us to serve now all the way up to the 22nd birthday and with the new grant that we're starting up to the 24th birthday. So now we talk about children, adolescents, and young adults. And so the name comes from the family that donated to the program years ago. Years ago, absolutely. It was a testament to the Claris family, big here in Waco, who provided some funding actually to the early childhood intervention program, like I said, known as Claris Children's Center, the birth through three. And when the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Division was started many, many years ago, MHMR decided to continue to honor them and to name the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Division Claris Center for Families. Heart of Texas answers to the state, the Health and Human Service Commission. I won't say that some of my colleagues at the state don't know us as Claris Center for Families, but typically when I call them at the state, I'm, they know me as the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Division Director at Heart of Texas. 
I actually know a little bit about the ECI part of it because my youngest has special needs. So we used you guys until his third birthday. So it was extremely helpful for us. Excellent. They're, they're a great, great part of the agency. And so let me talk a little bit about how we work with them. So not often, but occasionally we'll have someone from our ECI program, Claire's Children's Center, age out at age three, and we pick them up over at Claire's Center for Families. If it's primarily an emotional, behavioral, mental health type of issue or presentation, we might actually pick that three-year-old up at that age uh, when they age out of the ECI program. We work more closely typically with the adult mental health program when we've got uh, children and adolescents aging out. And we work very closely with developmental services, the other major division that works with individuals who have intellectual or developmental disabilities. So all, all four of the divisions do work closely together. Like I mentioned, there's tons of other programming going on beneath each one of those divisions. The agency is known as the local mental health authority uh, by the state of Texas. That's what they consider us for the six counties. So when it comes to child and adolescent mental health, that falls to, to Clara Center for Families. That falls to us to play that local mental health authority role for Heart of Texas. Uh, what does that really mean? It means that in addition to the numerous services that we provide, the provider side, as we would call it, we also act as an authority. And that means that even if we don't provide the counseling, the case management, the psychiatric services to, to a child or adolescent. We have some responsibility to assure that they get to somebody, a, maybe a private counselor, a private doctor, someone. So, mm -hmm. so we're both, we're both a, at this point, a pretty large provider, but also an authority. You see that some too, if you've got a child that's hospitalized, maybe in a state hospital uh, or elsewhere, and they're being discharged, and it's not someone that we've known, it's not someone necessarily that's been a client of ours, we will be contacted so that we can make sure that that child either gets to us or somewhere who can who can provide the needed services to them back in our catchment. That's good. Trying to reach those who maybe fall through the cracks a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. That's the authority function. The authority function is to assure to the degree possible that no one's fallen through the cracks when they're coming back to these six counties. And then, of course, the provider, the provider piece is providing all of those many services, essential services that we're providing every day. We are the local mental health safety net. We are, you know, if you can go anywhere in the nation, you go somewhere, some other state, you say MHMR, they may or may not know what you're talking about. But if you talk about who's your community mental health provider, they're going to know exactly what you're talking about. So that's us. We're the safety net. That means, you know, we do a lot of billing to Medicaid and CHIP and some of the other areas of the agency, Medicare, et cetera, and even to some private insurances. But we don't turn anyone away for the inability to pay. So um, there, there's the safety net piece. Um, if you need services, you're going to get services. You guys have a lot of people you serve. What does kind of a typical person that you guys serve, what, what do they look like? What are, what are some of their disabilities and, and what are some of the challenges they face? A long time ago, we decided here at Clara Center for Families that there was way more demand within those six counties than we had capacity to serve. I'm very, very proud of our group over the years because we have been very active and aggressive in trying to go out and find funding sources because there's not near enough funding to try to expand our capacity. And we've done so. We've expanded our capacity from about 220 to about 650 per month and probably the course, wow. course of five or six years. But we decided a long time ago that since there's not enough capacity, that we needed to serve the most intense situations, the most intense cases. Mm. Um, because where we're very, where we're different, there's a lot of good private counselors for children in our area. 
Unfortunately, there's very few psychiatrists, child and adolescent psychiatrists. But what we provide is we provide a holistic or wraparound approach where you're not just getting that counselor once a week, you're getting a case manager that's checking on you at school or at juvenile detention in the home, Dairy Queen, wherever you are. You're getting someone that's working with a parent who's had experience, a family partner who's had experience navigating the mental health system with their own child. You have uh, child and adolescent psychiatric services available if needed, countless uh, skills training groups and therapy groups. So the someone that we serve is getting a lot of services mm. and we're doing to the best of our ability. We're, we're, we're trying to serve also the family members, the, the parent, what we call the legally authorized representative, whoever the caregiver is, we're trying to bring them in because we can't serve 1800 people per month and we can serve, you know, six, 650. Uh, oftentimes we will refer somebody out. There's that authority function to someone else if they're maybe not as intense. And then we will try to serve those that are the most intense. We figured that's the best way to be, to serve our community. Again, I'm very proud that we've been able to increase the capacity like we have. I'd like to be able to continue to increase it because we, we do have to refer too many, too many folks out, but it's someone that's being served at Claire Center for Families is, um, you know, not, you know, might, might be dealing with depression, uh, severe anxiety, a mood disorder, bipolar, perhaps psychosis, schizophrenia. But if I were to describe, really try to describe our population, it's not always a severe mental illness or, or you know, it's not, it's not someone who necessarily has mental illness as much as maybe an emotional disturbance. There's an awful lot of children that we work with who've experienced trauma. We're pretty specialized in the treatment of childhood trauma. Uh, a lot of our clinicians have received specialty trainings in that. So someone here that we're serving is probably not only just having trouble at school, or probably not only just having trouble at home, or probably not only just having trouble with peer relationships, but probably all, all of those things. Mm. And if it just falls into one domain, that might be someone that we as an authority tried to refer to a counselor here in town or something. And I like you mentioned that, you know, right in the name is Center for Families. And so... Why is the family so important to helping a child or adolescent, you know, get the right help they need? Yeah, we say that all the time. You're exactly right. You know, we say we are Clara Center for Families. It's not every parent. It's not every caregiver who has the capacity or the time or is it the, is at the right spot in, in their life to receive some of the support or help that we can provide. But it is our goal with everyone, if possible, to bring in the entire family. Obviously the child is the quote client, but what we're trying to do with the family is we're trying to give the parent the support that they need to do everything they can to help navigate a very difficult situation, to try to, you know, obviously to give them some tips on parenting or some skills, but really more to do anything we can to help support them and to help them process our overall goal is to enhance the relationship. How can we do anything to help enhance the relationship in the family? What can we do to enhance relationships in the social system for kids? That's often, you know, at school, is that peers, is that teachers, coaches, the relationship is huge to us. So creating a therapeutic relationship between counselor and, and child or adolescent or young adult, creating that same therapeutic relationship with the case manager, creating that relationship with the parent or family member, but also trying to help them build and enhance relationships within their system. So you're exactly right. Our focus is always on what we can do to help kind of buoy the family and to help the family develop even stronger relationships among themselves, because it's kind of cliche to say in our field that, you know, you go see a counselor and that's one hour a week, but 
you know, then you go back out, go back out into the world with us. It's a little more than that. It may be, you see your counselor, see your case manager a couple of times. So it may be five or six hours a week, but still that pales in comparison to the amount of hours that you're back out in the world. So we're really seeking to try to enhance those familial relationships as much as we can. Yeah, I bet it's challenging, especially for families who maybe the parent didn't have a good parent themselves and they're trying to do the best for their kids, but they don't really know how to do that well. I mean, we're all we're all products of of how we were parented. And, you know, you can even talk about kind of intergenerational parenting and, you know, our parents themselves are are affected and impacted greatly by their parents, et cetera, et cetera. Working with families and giving them the safety, the support you know, the trust to really start unpacking some of that and to being it to, to get to a point where you can kind of identify, hey, this is something I'm accustomed to doing, or this is something that occurred in my childhood. And now I see that perhaps there might be a different way I could do that, that would strengthen my, the relationship with my child. Uh, I may have the best interest, probably have the best interest at heart, but perhaps, perhaps now that I look at this, doing it this way is maybe not strengthening that relationship the way I want it to, or is maybe closing me off to my child or something. So yeah, that, that's a difficult part for all of us. You know, that takes mm-hmm. their skills and we certainly try to provide that. Uh, but I really think it comes around more through support and kind of the developing of some insight of some different ways to go about interacting. You've kind of talked about having counseling sessions, visiting them at school. What does it look like your service in practice? Where are your people going and how are they interacting with the clients? Pre-COVID-19, we have a main building downtown, Clara Center for Families, and it's typically very bustling. We're running four or five days of the week. We're running child and adolescent psychiatric clinic. So we've got you know nurses and we've got folks coming in to, to see the psychiatrist. And we've got folks coming in to see, do kind of the traditional model of coming in to see their counselor. It's time for me to come in and see my counselor. It's two o'clock on Thursday. I'm back to see my counselor again this week. So a lot of that going on. We've got family partners that I've mentioned who've had their own experience with their own children who have dealt with emotional disorders and mental health issues who are just fantastic and work closely with some of the parents. Maybe while their child's in a, in a counseling session, instead of the parents sitting in a waiting area or something, they're, they're meeting with a family partner. And then we've got case managers that are coming and going left and right. Mm-hmm. So you see them some in the building, but mostly they're out in the field. They're everywhere. And we talk about get out there, get out in the street. So wherever, and that's often in schools, that's often at the juvenile detention center, uh, that's very often at homes, doing whatever they can to connect to resources, to, to make sure services that are being provided both internally and externally, you know, are successful and are meeting the need, the individual needs of the child and the family. So the building's a busy place, but it's just, a, there's a lot of moving parts. So you kind of have, like I said, more of a traditional, you come see the psychiatrist, you come see the counselor, but many of the other services are out in the community. And we've added quite a few services here recently to, to our traditional kind of mental health service array. So what are some of those services? that people may not know about. Via a large federal grant we got uh, about four years ago that's coming to an end in a week at the end of the month here. We were able to identify several things that we saw as great needs, kind of gaps in the continuum of care through the years. And we wrote a proposal called Closing the Gaps and applied to SAMHSA at the federal level and received something called a System of Care grant. It was a four-year grant. With that grant, we had identified three major pillars that we wanted to address. And one was child and adolescent mental health respite. One was transition age youth program. And another was school-based mental health programming. So through the years, we saw far too many times children and adolescents that we worked with who didn't quite meet the definition of a mental health crisis. We're right there about needing to be hospitalized. 
that we knew if we just had a place to for them to go get a break, a respite with trained mental health folks, that we could avert a needless hospitalization. One, you know, and you know, at any, any hospitalization, even at the even the best place, is is traumatizing. Mm-hmm. It's not where you want to send children. It's also quite expensive. And in Waco, there is not a, a psychiatric hospital for children. So the closest place you go in is Belton, more often maybe Austin mm-hmm. or Dallas. You know, there's always instances where you need to hospitalize, but we saw far too many cases where maybe. Maybe there was family discord. Maybe there was something that went on at school, what have you. And we thought, golly, here we are hospitalizing, but we can't, you know, we can't send them back to the current environment right now because it it will get to that point. And so we long knew we, we needed something. And so with this grant, we were able to get the seed money to start something called the Youth Crisis Respite House. We've had it up and running about a year and a half. It was the last piece of that grant that we implemented. And so it's just been incredible. We've got this house out on six acres that can house six to nine different youth at one time. It's short term, maybe three, seven days. It allows us to work with the child, work with the family, kind of cool things down, teach or remind of some coping skills. And we have been able to avoid a significant amount of situations that would have otherwise resulted in a hospitalization out of town. So that's just been thus far a really a really big success for us. Most recently, we've kind of multi, multi-purposed that as we've gotten into the youth homelessness field. Now we also can take youth, I don't know if folks know this, but especially in Waco, there's a, an unacceptable amount of youth that are homeless, couch surfing or just purely homeless. So we're now able to use that house as a temporary place to house homeless youth and try to connect them to a more stable, permanent housing situation. So that that youth crisis respite house has just been an incredible thing over the last year and a half or so. The second big piece is that transitional age youth program. We saw way too many times through the years where someone would turn 18 they would not qualify with our colleagues in adult mental health because they did not have maybe an, a severe mental illness. Fortunately, the state has loosened some of the qualifications with adult mental health over the years. But for a long time, unless you had a severe mental illness, you couldn't qualify. So we watched too many times a 17-year-old that was working closely with their child and adolescent therapist here, had a close relationship with the case manager, family was working with the family partner, might have a juvenile probation officer that they're working closely with, hit 18, be out of our services, lose their doctor, the counselor, the case manager, juvenile probation officer, drop out of school. And this is all happening when benefits change at 18. And we also know that it's one of the highest risk times for the development of severe mental illness in in our lives during this developmental stage. So it was just heartbreaking through the years. And we always said if there was some way we could we could develop, if we had the dollars to develop something for those that didn't qualify for an adult mental health service to carry these young folks, continue to help them with some of the mental health challenges as we started to get them connected to maybe some sort of occupation, maybe a school, maybe keeping them in school, maybe helping them get into a college, work on housing, work on a change of benefits as they transition to adulthood. So that's the program that we're able to start out of this. It's called TAY, Transition Age Youth. It really should be Transition Age Young Adults, but Transition Age Youth. And we've been running that for about three years. That's been highly successful. The only problem there is we have way more people Uh, Mm -hmm. that are in need of it, then we have capacity to serve. And then finally, the third pillar that I mentioned is school-based mental health. Again, I I mentioned that we identified gaps in the continuum of care that we saw through the years. You know, we we said, hey, we do this counseling thing pretty well. We do this 
psychiatry thing pretty well. It's case management, this group, this family partner, here's the traditional services that look at these gaps. And there's a respite gap. There was a transition age youth gap. And then there was a school-based mental health gap. We know that that's where children are, that we kind of have a saying that that's where they live. That's their job when you're that age. And so far too many times, a lot of the families that we work with had competing demands on their time, may have other children that need this, uh, may need medical appointments, may have several jobs, may be looking at just trying to make ends meet and trying to get your child up here after school. Even the transportation to do so might not be the top priority, even, even if you'd really like to. So we were very passionate about this. What we did is we were able to develop and train our own staff and start placing them in different school districts and different campuses around our area. And this has been wildly successful too. So now we're working with a lot of children in a lot of schools who otherwise likely would not be receiving services because they, it, it's possible that, that some of them would have come here anyway. But, but what we know is the vast majority that we're serving through the school-based mental health program would not have been served otherwise. We know that to do well academically, that to reduce disciplinary referrals, that for good social development and emotional development, that meeting those mental health and emotional health needs is a huge thing. So we are now on, I believe, nine different districts on 40 campuses, I believe. We've had some support from some of the districts that were able to provide a little bit to help us. And that's been awesome to see. But that's another one where there's not the there's not the funding. That's not that's not a core service. That's not a traditional service. That's just been that's just been our mm -hmm. desire to reach out and close the gaps. You know, if I could if I could wave a magic wand, we would have at least two to four of our mental health staff on every campus and in every district. Those are the three big ones. Those are the three big ones from the grant. And most recently, over the last year, we is when we've really gotten into the youth homelessness as well. And we know that obviously anyone, any youth dealing with homelessness has dealt with trauma and needs some mental health support as well. On the youth homelessness front, are you guys working with people like The Cove and other charity champions maybe to kind of address that? Very closely. We work very, very closely with Kelly and all The Cove staff. We have a, a relationship, a connection, arrangement, I guess, with The Cove, with our Youth Crisis Respite House. You know, The Cove does such excellent work. And then they've got someone that has nowhere to go and it's eight o'clock, they have to close or whatever. Uh, they're able to reach out to us. And if we have the availability at the Youth Crisis Respite House, we can we can put that youth up there for a few days. We work with them daily in a number of ways. They're a fantastic organization. And we know that we have a lot of individuals that we serve that hang out at the Cove. And they know that a lot of the youth that they're working with are also receiving services with us. You know, homelessness and, and mental health go hand in hand. One doesn't necessarily equal the other. But we know that when you're looking at social drivers of health, you're looking at housing, you're looking at food, you're looking at safety, you're looking at transportation. And those are the types of gaps that we try to identify and then try to come up with some way, some sort of grant funding or something to go after them. The, the challenge with the grants, they're awesome if you can get them and win them and you know everyone gets super excited as they should. But the challenge is that those dollars, those dollars go away. It was interesting when I heard you say that, that you had this great program and this, this grant was going to be ending tomorrow. What are some ways that people who are really passionate about helping out youth, especially with these mental health problems, how can people help? I think that one thing that happens with us is that because we're part of MHMR, I think that there is some thought that somehow 
there's a good bit of state funding or federal funding or local or county or whatever. We get a little bit of all of that. But I don't think people understand that there's barely enough money just to kind of keep going and pay your staff, you know, what they're worth and what the state asks us to do. Mm-hmm. Just just to provide here, hey, provide this counseling, provide this case management, provide this skills training, et cetera. When you start trying to develop new things and fill gaps where there aren't existing funding streams and rely on grant dollars for a couple of years, that gets very, very, again, exciting, but that gets very, very perilous. Mm-hmm. And so the goal then during the entire course of the grant is to try to develop sustainability. That might be trying to put together some smaller grant funds through the state or locally, or uh, find some giving, find find ways to do some billing that you didn't anticipate. But yeah, anybody interested in the Youth Crisis Respite House and what we're doing there to provide a safe, trauma-sensitive, culturally sensitive, very non-hospital, non-sterile, very chilled type of atmosphere to adolescents who are in a mental health crisis. And now, adolescents who may be homeless. Anybody who's passionate about that, any kind of support is always can go an awful long way. You know, each year you're budgeting and you're trying to figure out, is this going to be a sustainable deal? And typically the way you do that in in our field is you look at what's billable is, you know, can you bill some of these hours or those hours? That doesn't happen so much at at, at a crisis respite house. Again, anyone who's interested or passionate about the young adult population, about that really fragile time when you're transitioning and you're turning from 17 to 18 and you know you can imagine that while you've also are transitioning out of maybe cps or juvenile justice and you lose your child and adolescent mental health providers and your benefits are changing and you you may move out and you may drop out of school and you're, you're not sure exactly what you want to do with life i know i know that that's something that i'm very passionate about is that age uh, that transitional age youth program is just too small. We've got we've got uh, four people working in it, and there's a lot of lot of individuals that that have expressed interest in it. And we don't have the don't have this resources to provide it. And then I'll come back around to school based mental health. I'm a huge huge believer in that. We have had some schools that have the means to help provide a little a few dollars help offset what we can't bill, but schools are strapped and we're strapped. And so there's only so much, only so much reimbursement that comes from that. So again, I, th- I think if, if there's anybody who's interested in or passionate about those things, you know, you know, is it, is it that young adult, that transition age youth population? Is that crisis respite house that also includes homeless services? Is it breaking down barriers to access to mental health and actually getting right there in the schools and working hand in hand with the schools with trained mental health professionals? All All of those areas are areas that are difficult to sustain. We feel like coming out of this four-year grant, we feel like we're there for this year, or at least for the beginning of this year. And I'm very proud of our staff for all that they've done to, to keep it going. You do hear those stories where grants end and, and they go away. You know, those services go away and you roll those up. And fortunately for us, we're not at that spot right now. But I, I guess I would like people to, to know that just because MHMR may be a bigger social service organization than than some others doesn't mean that they're by any stretch have the funding they need to do all of the services that the community needs. Are there no community partnerships that are available or are ways that you can connect with people or that people could connect with you to kind of help fund these sorts of situations? 
you know, obviously we're not fundraisers. That's not what we do. We're, we're clinicians. This is somewhat new to us that we have, that we have been learning about that as we've <laughs> worked to try to develop sustainability. We've had incredible gift from Citizen Awaco fairly recently to help us purchase the Youth Crisis Respite House, which goes a long way in uh, helping us operate it. So now, now we're looking to kind of figure out just the operational, the ongoing operational expenses, but it's just an incredibly generous gift there. We've had some help from Cooper Foundation. So that's what we do. You try to find some of those funds, but mostly what we've done is we've tried to find some smaller grants. We would love for anybody that feels like any of these things that we're doing is something that it really speaks to them or resonates with them that would like to support us to reach out to us. Go to our website, www.hotrmhmr.org. And from there, you should be able to find the Child and Adolescent or Claire Center for Families tab on the website. It's something that's fairly new to us, but something we're having to learn pretty quick <laughs> is that we, we must braid funding. We must blend funding. We must come up with ways to sustain those programs or otherwise you're just back to some very great services, but back to just the kind of traditional services, which are not funded well enough to begin with. So I would just say that if anybody's interested in, in any of these programs and, you know, I haven't, there's also just the kind of the core mental health services that we're providing day in and day out that are just some in, incredible stories, some incredible children teenagers and families, young adults that we work with in addition to these new programs. But if anybody's interested in that, please visit our website. Please give us a call. You know, we are doing a little bit more of that now. We, we've got, we helped develop something called Our Community, Our Future, which is known as the Heart of Texas System of Care Group, which has, you know, 40, 50, 60 different members that meet about every five or six weeks. The group is comprised of Pretty much anybody you can think of that works with children and adolescents in, in our area, uh, juvenile justice, child protective service, uh, representatives of the schools, us, advocacy center, on and on and on. The Cove. What we're looking to do is to continue the type of philosophy and movement that we had with this Closing the Gaps grant, which is how do we continue to identify those gaps in care for our highest need children and, and highest risk adolescents in our community and realize that, that whether they're your own individual particular client or not, that we'll, we're trying to pull together in this with this system of care mission and try to serve them. How do we cross train? How do we pull our resources? How do we attempt to not duplicate services? How do we better educate ourselves so that we can work more closely the way we do with juvenile justice, the low juvenile justice here in McLennan County, the way we do with the Cove, Hill County, juvenile justice, et cetera. But also how can we keep ourselves aware of what funding opportunities there may be so that we can go after something to help address one of these gaps? If it means continuing to go after grants that end and kind of gambling in that way, I think uh, most of us on that group and certainly here at Claire Center for Families are willing to do it. Is it stressful? Sure. Is, <laughs> you know, you, you'd rather you'd rather start identifying some ongoing funding streams to help support what you're doing. Well, it's my hope now that you're a charity champion that the spotlight will be shined on you guys and people will learn about the great work you're doing and step up. So if you're listening to this podcast right now, you have the means. I think you guys have a really amazing service you're providing to the community. Between that and seeing you at Baylor Games and, and online and other places that people might see you, I think we could probably help out somehow. Somebody's out there. I know that. That that sounds that sounds fantastic. You can have a better mission. You can have a we've got a great a great group that is tireless in what they do day in and day out. So I wanted to talk about this a little bit because I'm sure it's affected you quite a bit, but how, how has COVID changed the way you guys operate? 
Yeah, just yeah, just like anybody, it it, it has impacted us a great deal. Uh, and then, of course, you think, well, you think of the mental health piece, and that's us, right? Um, so, if there's ever been a time to ensure to ensure a continuity of care, it's right now. So, we, like many others, have uh, you know, we've been trying to follow the best advice of the medical experts, and we've kind of fluctuated between how we provide services. Uh, we've pretty much been running what we've been referring to here lately as a hybrid model, where we've got counselors that can provide some services via uh, Zoom or uh, FaceTime, that kind of thing that the state has relaxed a few regulations on during this period. Doing so, uh, where there's a lot of folks that, that, you know, we really need to get out and we need to check on them. So we've got case managers trying to be, we, we don't like to say socially distant, we like to say physically distance. So we've got, <laughs> we don't really like the term socially distance. We don't think we need to be socially distanced at all, especially mm -hmm. during this time. We need to maintain and try to enhance those social connections. So we go out, we try to stay physically distanced, you know, meet out in the front yard, meet in the backyard, meet wherever we can, walking around the school track rather than maybe doing it, you know, doing some of the meetings in the office, uh, a lot of telephonic, a lot of telehealth via Skype, via Skype, Zoom. But we've really tried to double down on our mental health services, and we've tried to educate all those that we can that this is the time to really be paying attention to your mental health. You know, it's completely, completely normal to be feeling depressed or anxious or scared uh, right now. We're hoping, you know, if there's any silver lining, that maybe there's an enhanced focus on mental health and taking care of ourselves and understanding how incredibly important um, social connections are to mental health, those those rituals that the pandemic has just really completely thrown off, if not temporarily eliminated. So we we have been just like everybody else in trying to keep safety, number one, for our, for our clients and families and for our staff. But we also understand that that we're the front lines. We're not the doctors and we're not, and we're not the first responders, but we talk here about how, well, we're, we're the mental health first responders. Mm -hmm. You know, we are the community mental health safety net. It's been a balance, but during it all, whether it's teachers we're talking to, parents we're talking to, educators we're talking to, we're advocating constantly to not allow this to interrupt the access that we need to provide mental health services. You know, the, the school's a good example. What an unbelievable challenge they've got going on right now. We're concerned that, you know, that one of the things, one thing that could come about is that there might be limited access to some of the counseling sessions that one of their students is, is, used, is used to receiving coming here on Tuesdays or having us come up there on Wednesdays or whatever. And so we're really trying to beat the drum mm -hmm. to let folks so mental health is always important, uh, but it's hugely important right now. And I would think that there's, there's probably people who haven't had as much of a struggle as a lot of us have had that are now struggling during COVID. So maybe they understand the challenges that not having just those basic services like a home or a steady job or paycheck can have on your mental health. Right, exactly. And, you know, that's kind of what we were talking about a little earlier, Randy, is that there's, there's these social drivers of health. There's housing. There's, there's reliable food. There's safety. Mm -hmm. And all of those things, all of those things impact our mental health and all of those things are, can be traumatic. And so when you, when you throw something like this on anybody, it's natural to see, uh, to see our mental health affected. You throw this on, on children or families, many of whom 
have a scarcity of food to begin with, many of whom do not have stable housing to begin with, many of whom do not have reliable transportation, many of whom maybe have their challenges at school, all while dealing with emotional or mental health issues. Um, and then you see you see things compounded a great a great deal, which is why it is so important right now to make sure that in spite of anything else that happens to try to keep people safe, we uh, focus very, very sharply on maintaining, if not growing, access to mental health care. I think, like I said, the other piece is is the impact on the social connections, um, because we know in the field, we know how important that is to our mental health. So kind of goes back to why, why we say physical rather than social distancing. Do you have any stories of people that you guys were able to help and you just really, it kind of warmed your heart and kind of made you say, this is why I come into work every day. I could go talk to one of our clinicians right now and they could give me 30, but uh, we've had countless, uh, we've had individuals that we've worked with from age nine or 10 that have come back at 22, 23. will talk to us about a job, the job they now have, uh, the relationship that they now have, the child they now have, college education sometimes that they now have. And you think back and of all of the different challenges that might have involved juvenile justice or might have involved protective services, might have involved hospitalizations, and knowing that they're, they and we were relentless ensuring those relationships with that counselor or that case manager or that, that team never ended. You know, we talk a lot here about, you know, this isn't the type of deal where you go mow a yard and at the end of the day, you're like, oh, that feels good. I, you know, look at it, it's mowed. I think a lot of us in this field enjoy mowing yards when we can for that very reason, because that that's not something you get here. You have to have the constitution that allows you to understand that any kind of tangible result is typically mm -hmm. far off. I know, we all know here that we're making huge impacts daily, hourly. Uh, but it is really nice. And, and we've had countless, countless stories, countless situations where you get children who are now adults are coming back talking to you. Certainly you get parents or the families uh, that do that uh, in real time or or later come back and tell you of the successes that have gone on. You know, everyone just, for instance, at the Youth Crisis Respite House that goes through there fills out a questionnaire when they leave. And then there's questions on there like, what would you have done if you didn't have the Youth Crisis Respite House? Where do you think you would have been? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's parts where you can just write things. And I mean, I can just go grab a handful of those at any time and it just warms your heart. And that's, and that's just the youth crisis respite house. We've been able to help people out sometimes with just flexible funding where we know, you know, we've got you in counseling, we're trying to help you in school. We, we know that a, a basketball goal, you know, basketball is a huge coping thing for you. And we've been able to access basketball goals or times, you know, a karate class or gym membership or whatever. And all of these things to try to kind of plug the holes and fill the gaps around whatever psychiatric care someone may be receiving around whatever counseling they may be receiving. Tons and tons of stories that go on that really are happening every day. I really like your analogy about mowing the lawn because you, you do the work and you can see the result. But a lot of times, not only do you, do you put in the work, work with somebody, there can be setbacks and, you know, the fruits of your labor could be years and years in the making. So that's really got to be a special kind of passion to work with those people. It, it is. I'm thinking of one young man in particular who made his way back here through a lot of difficulty to get here over quite a distance to come in and talk to the counselor next door to me and find him some 10, 11 years later and, and tell him what a difference he had made to him and how he's carried him with him this entire time. And, and the success that he's realizing now. It's, it is uh, very, very meaningful work. 
Excellent. So we, we kind of asked you in your charity champions video, but you know, this is a time for you guys to really think big and ask about like, what's the, the biggest pressing things that if somebody is listening to this now and they can fill that gap, what are the things that you really need right now? We really need sustained funding for some of the newer programs that were begun through grant dollars. We need any kind of support we can have to sustain school-based mental health and hopefully expand it to other schools. The transition age youth program could use could use more uh, support so that we can expand that to a, there's a great demand for that. And in the youth crisis respite house, it's that's working with both the mental health crises and and youth homelessness. That one just doesn't have a lot of kind of billable options, and so uh, the operation costs out there. You know, those just keep going staff and upkeep and bills and that kind of thing. I think if someone was just asking me, there's other things I'd like to be able to do things for staff that are working some of our more traditional services, too. Mm -hmm. But if having just come off the budget year, uh, our fiscal year starts in September. So having just put together this budget to begin the year, I would definitely say it would be some help supporting the Youth Crisis Respite House, the the Transition Age Youth Program or school-based mental health. Um, Transportation is a huge deal. We know that's one of the gaps. We are starting a a transportation program in our rural counties where there's fewer resources and um, we're looking to get some vans out there, trying to make sure that we're getting folks into appointments, whether it be our appointments or necessary medical appointments or housing appointments or what have you. Uh, I think that's probably one of the next areas we're really going to be looking at is just transportation. You know, the, the, we, we try to identify what are the barriers to accessing mental health? Well, there's stigma. And, and so we obviously try to educate along with many of our other partners about that. And fortunately, I think that that is, I believe that's improving. Um, what else is there? There's uh, transportation. We've started to do, try to get some, a van or two and try to do some transporting, try to hire our staff to do that. And then that's exactly what we did with school base is we said, you know, let, let's go to you. Let, let's take that need to be transported or to drive over to our office after school's over. Let's, let's take it to where you are. I think school base is a really good representation of trying to do something about the barriers to access to services. I think, I think respite is a really good example of trying to fill a gap. We've already seen some pretty amazing outcomes there where we would have seen some hospitalizations out of town kind of repeating myself here, but then there's the, then there's the tape program where we're able now to kind of walk with folks as they become an adult. Uh, rather than dropping them uh, right at their 18th birthday. What are some ways that people can find you online if they want to start following what you're doing and they want to get involved? The, the easiest way is to go to www.hotrmhmr, that's Heart of Texas Region, hotrmhmr.org. Mm-hmm. And there you'll be able to find uh, information about our adult mental health services, our uh, Heart of Texas Intellectual and Developmental Disability Services, the Early Childhood Intervention Services. But if you're interested specifically in Clara Center for Family Services, you'll see the tab there uh, and it'll take you and it will give you more details about what we're doing. It also give you information on how to contact us if you're interested in just getting more information, if you're interested in trying to support us. That's a great place to go. Um, you can also search Our Community, Our Future, which is the group that I mentioned that we were involved in, uh, the system of care group that I mentioned that we were involved in developing. That's got a lot of good information on that website. Uh, so you can search OCOF, O-C-O-F. Lots um, of acronyms. Um, yeah, lots. Of, I mean, that's the world we're in. I try to try to avoid those. But I think probably the, uh, the easiest way is to go to our website at hotrmhmr.org or to give us a call. Excellent. Thank you, Ron, so much for your time. And thanks for the great work you guys are doing there at Claris. 
Thanks for listening to the Charity Champions podcast. If you're listening on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review us. This helps our podcast reach more listeners. Have a charity you'd like to nominate for next season? Visit charitychampions.org and look for the nominate button at the top of the page. You can also find more information on this podcast and all charity champions at charitychampions.org. We'll see you next time.